of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to your show. Welcome to the show. I'm your host Andy Longhurst, broadcasting on CITR 101.9 FM, streaming at citr.ca, and on CJSF 90.1 FM, also streaming at cjsf.ca. On the program, I speak at length with Noah Quastel, a doctoral student in the UBC Department of Geography, on issues of sustainability, urban development, politics, and gentrification. This is the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay tuned. Recently, I caught up with Noah Questel, a PhD candidate in the UBC Department of Geography, and uh, we got together um, at a ca- cafe on Commercial Drive. And uh, Noah's current and past research uh, concerns law and sustainable economies. Um, he's interested in tracing the interconnections between political ecology, um, ecological economics, and law and policy. And so a number of these things um, will, will uh, certainly be touched on in the interview um, So in 2009, Noah authored an article published in the journal Urban Geography titled Political Ecologies of Gentrification. The article, and I quote, explores the possibilities for a political ecology of gentrification. Gentrification research, while firmly rooted in materialist social science, has yet has not yet broadened broadened its interest to consider ecological aspects of or the role in gentrification of discourses, social movements, and state policies of the environment. Understanding the political ecologies of gentrification involves recognizing the ways in which material relations and uneven resource consumption, concepts of nature, and the politics of urban environmental management affect gentrification processes. New developments in Vancouver increasingly contribute to gentrification using languages of sustainability and green consumption in a process of ecological gentrification. So, and... uh, a number of these themes and concepts uh, will be explained at length um, in my interview. And so to go right into it, because we have a um, uh, this hour is dedicated to this uh, very uh, interesting and uh, quite informative interview um, with Noah. We're going to get right into it. So uh, this is the city on CITR 101.9 FM and CJSF 90.1. And uh, this hour dedicated to a discussion around these these very issues, um, which I mentioned, and I pulled that from uh, Noah's um, from the article's um, abstract and a piece piece of work um, that uh, 
certainly shapes the way that I think about the city um, and contextualizes a lot of these processes in Vancouver. So without any further ado, um, let's get right into it. This is part one um, of my interview with Noah Questel of the UBC Geography Department, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Tell me about yourself and summarize your research and or just give us a snapshot of what you're working on. Or Okay, so I um, I started off in a philosophy. So I, I did an undergrad in philosophy and it was a very short one, a two-year one, because of transferring from other disciplines. And then I went on to do a master's in, in philosophy. And then... Uh, I really was working at a kind of intersection of continental and analytic philosophy and concepts of language. Uh, mm-hmm. I liked a lot of people like Habermas and Gadamer and, and, and Charles Taylor. Um, didn't fit that well into uh, analytic philosophy. I switched into law, uh, maybe for more social justice oriented reasons. Um, and, you know, I did a lot of great UBC. And then worked in, I worked downtown. And, you know, what happens in law is you kind of. Some people go into really spectacular organizations. A lot of people are kind of fed in a particular position to the pretty mundane, into pretty mundane jobs. So I, I worked doing that for a while. I worked at the courts. I, I uh, went to Guatemala for a year doing human rights. So that was that had a, a well. There was a genocide in the early '80s against the Mayan populations with the uh, tacit support of the American government. So. That had a lot of uh, overlays of neocolonialism and indigenous struggles and land rights. Um, and it was really great to be able to do legal work at that, that juncture. And, uh, I did that, and I came back to Vancouver. I worked in a, in a litigation firm. And at a certain point, I just sort of said, you know, um, there are certain things I want to achieve in my life, and it's not going to work playing around <laughs> in these worlds. And what I was interested in is... is um, First of all, understanding the state and law in terms of relationships to the natural environment. A second, doing something about a variety of environmental crises. And third, doing it in a way which reflects, I guess, an issue about social justice and also reflects a notion of, of materiality and that's maybe the harder one to, to, to get across um, and it's something like this um, it's been 40 years it's been since the late 60s there's been an, a counterculture pressing for massive economic and social change to Western societies and that vision's gone through a lot of different articulations and a lot of trial and errors. But there's some fundamentals to it which I think are still sane and still need to be continued, which is that we need to look at energy and materials, we need to look at our relationship with the earth, we have to rethink our our notion of ourselves as detached, abstract rationalizers. And that involves processes of developing self-understanding and developing our metabolic relations with nature. And that kind of vision I saw in some forms of ecological Marxism, in some frames. Most people haven't. I don't think very many people who come from that kind of post that kind of post-materials value set would have looked at that tradition. Um, they tend to go more for Eastern philosophy and yoga and sustainability discourses. Uh, and, but the route that I sort of got into was that. And so I applied to, to do a PhD. So in law, I did a master's in law. Uh, my advisor, Michael McGonagall, is a wonderful guy. He's a deep green 
ecologist. He said, someone with your value set, you might be able to function in geography. So that's, that's how we ended up there. So I came into geography with a little bit of um, background and some ideas that I wanted to explore. And, and I sort of found a good fit by reading up political ecology and, uh, and urban issues. And now I'm also working on energy issues. So, so my PhD is really trying to recycle some of these ideas through thinking through renewable energy policy and industries. Can you, um, can you connect political ecology with the research that you've done on Vancouver? Just for those who may be unfamiliar with the concept of political ecology, how would, okay. how would you bring that down to Earth and bring that down to Vancouver? Okay, so you have a whole bunch of researchers through the... Back to the 1980s and 1990s, looking at developing or non-developed countries, um, looking at resources, use of nature. Um, I think starting off, just to give a very general gloss, I think starting off on pretty traditional sustainable development kind of concepts, like um, looking at a particular development project around growing apples or, or herding. And, and attempts by development agencies to change that. And then discovering that the, really the best way to understand these things in terms of an integrated package, which looks at the relationships between nature and people and social power. And once you get into social power, you get into the role of the state. And uh, I think quite often, because these were localized issues, it would be the local landlord and the local landlord's relationship to growing capitalist processes. By the late 1990s and early 2000s, you start getting those people writing much more in the urban context. And then they also articulate with ecological Marxist traditions to create urban political ecology. And you, you have... Um, some people are resource specialists, like Eric Swingadu, where the resource water is an urban located one. So you start looking much more at just the politics of the city. Um, others are are people with a social justice environmental bent in urban studies, like Roger Keel, uh, who, who takes on the, the political ecology language and reads it together with, with ecological Marxism. One failing of Marxist traditions that geographers have really been looking at for the last 20 years is how to translate them into more grounded empirical studies. To take some of the really large-scale claims about the tendencies of commodities or commodification or, or the role of capital and try and show how in very particular situations they play out also, not just to have a more fine-grained analysis, but also to, to vindicate or to empirically test those, those traditional claims. Uh, and so you've got now a, a body of people, uh, some from resource geography's perspectives, some from development perspectives, some from political economy perspectives, a very traditional political economy, all looking at the confluence of nature and environmental policies in cities. And it's a it's a growth industry. <laughs>
Would you say, though, that sustainability has been... Uh, it's been basically taken, um, one, to be a class signifier um, of a lifestyle that uh, you have to be able to buy, yeah. uh, a commodified lifestyle of sustainability, um, and secondly, it's also used something to to shape the city for high-end use, right, and, and higher and best uses, quote-unquote. Um, and how has that discourse been... Has that discourse been employed? I mean, emerging from livability within the, the very Vancouver context um, to a more broader sustainability theme and discourse. I think if you are building a luxury high-rise condominium downtown and calling it the Beasley, or if you're building a, a street in the Olympic Village and, and uh, naming after a former sustainability plan, you're clearly appropriating those concepts uh, for class dynamics. And it would be developers that are doing it, and they're doing it to make a buck, but in the process of making a buck, they're reinforcing and, and reproducing those kind of class signifiers. So there's, that is definitely happening. Um, and then, but is it really an empty, it's an empty term in the sense that you have these high-rises and you have places like Yale Town where the majority of people are not walking and biking to work, they're commuting by private automobile. Or you have the Rise Tower that was just approved, um, where you have 320 parking stalls, which has been lauded as being a transit-oriented development. I think we need to separate three things up. One, I don't think sustainability is entirely an empty signifier. I think that it attached to a series of proposals and policy instruments that aren't particularly strong and don't necessarily realize the full range of our values. So I think it means something, uh, and it, I think it does mean very strongly that when we design things and when we plan things, we've got to think about the environmental consequences of what we do. And we should be trying to design things in a holistic way that maximizes uh, social well-being and, and some degree of prosperity as well. I don't think it's empty, but I think it's very flexible and I think it can be manipulated in a lot of ways. And as it's being rolled out in neoliberal cities, is very much being shifted towards a market-friendly uh, project and in a society which is becoming increasingly class stratified those kind of market oriented projects are also class projects well then can but it be reclaimed uh, I think that it's also dominated by a planning ethos and a managerial ethos and I think it's going to be really really hard for social justice groups to entirely swallow that and I don't think that kind of planning and managerial language has ever gone down well in mass social movements. Uh, but I don't think that that core value, in terms of something that, that professionals who plan things should work with, is entirely something that should be thrown out. And so in my later work, I say, well, no, I think we should, I think a better approach is to hammer much more on the social and say, look, as part of the package, we want social, more social equality. We need to be measuring social impacts. We need to be measuring uh, inequality. We need to be addressing it. And that, that, that goes to another, I think, I, I, 
hopefully I got two points in there so I can say I got three points because the third point is part of it is that these are projects which are long term they require a whole generation of people to be trained in the concepts and then instrument operationalize them once in government and then you can start looking at the effects and now we're at a point in Vancouver where we can say what's really happening now that these concepts are being operationalized and when we look, we can see there are some major, major problems. And so the, the policy tools and the thinking and the conceptualization needs to be dramatically readjusted. And so a lot of this criticism, a lot of people are standing up and saying, you know, you guys are using a CD1 development site to build a 23-story high-rise in this neighborhood, but it's being decimated by gentrification forces and you aren't doing anything to stop it. That is a serious criticism of a sustainability agenda. And the people who believe in sustainability, if they believe anything that I've been taught about how that's supposed to work, about um, understanding processes empirically and then using feedback for results, a kind of evidence-based planning, they should be looking at this and saying, we got to rethink this package. And one way of rethinking it is to explicitly say that it's going to be about ensuring and promoting social justice and income equality and social trust in society. Do you think social justice should come first and foremost, and would that not, in many ways, uh, allow environmental justice to follow? No. No, because traditionally there's been a brown left. And the brown left puts social justice first, and then does things like, say, we want to use the state to help facilitate sustained yield harvesting. Or... We want to use the power of the state to ensure that the oil processing facilities are in our jurisdiction. And that that's not thinking, which has incorporated the significant problems with the environment, nor thought through the ethics and the relationalities of our connection with nature. Could you say, though, that we're seeing, we're falling short on both fronts, though? Yes. So yeah. we're, losing, we're losing decent jobs because we don't have the industrial jobs, the working class job base that we once did in most North American cities. Um, and we're also doing very poorly on the environmental front. We have to rethink through our systems of production and consumption. Dramatically. Now. And in rethinking those things through, we have to be thinking through um, planetary boundaries and we need to be thinking through some basic principles of social organization, which are fulfilling people's basic needs, uh, creating social trust, uh, and there's a huge literature on, on how adapting to climate change requires trust and, and social cohesion, and we need to be addressing inequality and social power. But the reasons why sustainability discourse always express things in large-scale abstract concepts and principles is because in that kind of future-oriented movement towards change where we have to be doing big stuff, it's going to be general principles that are, are going to be, are going to be uh, ones that we follow. Um, and so... My faith is, is that if we add those into the equation and look to 
I guess what we could call a just transition. The notion of justice was the just transition was used by uh, auto workers. Uh, looking at how to move the industry to other ones. But if we're talking about an energy transition and a social transition towards living in a society which respects our planetary boundaries and leads to decarbonization and addresses biodiversity, we're, we're going to be embarked on a, on, a, on a large-scale project in which we need to have worked out some kind of heuristic of the values that we're going to follow. And so an argument like, well, we have to start with jobs, that just brackets the entire issue of uh, reforming uh, production and consumption systems. And that was part one of my interview with Noah Quastel of the UBC Geography Department. And we're going to go now to a quick break. This is the City on CATR 101.9 FM and CJSF 90.1. And we'll be back with part two very shortly. Listen, if they're so hot, how come they're not tearing up the charts, babe? Because you never play them, babe. At CITR, our hosts choose the music they play. That means our charts actually reflect the tastes of music lovers, as opposed to focus groups. So if you want to know what's really tearing up the charts, get your hands on a copy of Beatroot or Discorder magazine, or go online to CITR.ca. CITR's charts are based on actual spins motivated by actual preference. No payola, no marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no? With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. This is a call for artists with a community focus and performance artists for site-specific installation. Public Dreams is calling emerging, professional, and community artists of all disciplines to submit work that may be showcased as the marketing campaign for Illuminaris 2012. Public Dreams will bring the Illuminaris Lantern Festival back to Trout Lake. For submission guidelines, more information, or to donate, please visit publicdreams.org today. Have you heard of the newly opened NSCS Discovery Restaurant at 1515 Discovery in Jericho Park? Profits support NS Culinary Education Society of BC. Enjoy breakfast on the beach for only $4.95, served daily from 7 a.m. till 11 p.m. Say you heard this ad and receive 5% off lunch and dinner items until May 31st, 2012. Enjoy breakfast, lunch, or dinner at the newly opened NSCS Discovery Restaurant at 1515 Discovery in Jericho Park and support a local social enterprise. How would you characterize sustainability, the ideas of sustainability and livability uh, in Vancouver and how they've evolved over time? Okay. The, the part of this picture, and I think it's part of the notion of environmental change really goes back to to a generation in the 60s and 70s which was challenging um, industrial productivism in, in the West. And the freeway battles that Mike Harcourt and Jane Jacobs uh, keep on referring to and they use this kind of foundation that really actually show you can think of it as a myth that they use to justify what they're doing, but you can also think of it really as a good explanation of what they're about, which is they're opposed to 
a kind of instrumental rationality in the service of state and capital, which wants to dramatically rescale the city to be a, a integrated um, unit of traffic flow and commerce to the sacrifice of local neighborhoods and sacrificing local notions of well-being. And you can see these these freeways as dramatically impacting on notions of the social in terms of well-being and, and how people are connected in neighborhoods and their interactions and environmental in terms of, of, of very large physical and capital intensive infrastructure which is being built with no regard to its environmental impact. And so that resistance could be voiced as the need to reimagine the city or whatever scale of planning in terms of social and environmental effects. So in the 1970s and 80s, groups like Team in Vancouver, uh, you know, people who are becoming professors uh, of planning and, and urban studies and of development were all voicing things in terms of the need for this kind of an integrated approach. And it played out in politics as well. And so, 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 so the, the, the politics in Vancouver in the 70s, and David Lay's documented this, were about incorporating environmental and social concerns and, and well-being and post-material values into the city family. So in my reading... Uh, but, but what I... Yeah. There's just one story, just so I don't go on. A lot of this gets translated through... Well, very elaborate processes, even of international negotiations, into a language of sustainability. Advocates of that earlier position would say sustainability articulates a lot of their values, but they don't identify with sustainability as a movement or a package. Now, can you bring that, before I ask a different question, can you bring that up to uh, urban planning uh, in Vancouver now, and how that has been shaped how the sustainability has shaped and the livability from team going back to the 70s has shaped the contours of planning and design um, and the essentially the urban fabric in Vancouver. Well, Vancouver or has it? Well, Vancouver was very ripe for these ideas to develop because so many people that came here did so because of perceived uh, focus on, on personal well-being and that it was a very uh, nature-oriented place, you know, having views and access to beaches. Personal but or co- and collective? Um, or personal first and foremost? When you say personal well-being? been a mix of views, but there probably would have been a lot of people who would have channeled it in, in an individualistic direction. Um, I, 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 the myth of sort of the, the we generate the me generation of the 1970s fits that package. Um, but there's been strong s- social justice and, and community-oriented push in the city as well. And there was a big co-op movement in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And, and planners and professors who were involved in this process often point to the South Falls Creek development as an example of things going right. And that did contain a lot of social housing. 
there was a lot of currents of individualism and a lot of more more left-wing currents, and they were working together. And, and when I go back and try and disentangle these, I find that often people themselves aren't that clear on where they stand. But these things tend to get molded together in social movements quite a lot. Of There's always been sort of we've always all always already been having worked in coalitions where ideas get merged. So, uh, I mean, the short answer is, is that there was a consolidation of these views into city planning in the 1990s under the cover of uh, needing to plan growth in a livable region and uh, taking action on climate change. Because climate change was a file that governments have been dealing with since 1988. And it's always been understood that transportation and car use is a big ticket item, and so that needs to be changed. So the ideas got consolidated in the 1990s, but in the form of in the form of a process of very modest growth in the city of Vancouver, allowing large-scale suburbanization, not having freeways, and replicating a traditional downtown uh, that might be seen in cities like Montreal or Toronto in Vancouver. So they were able to use a lot of new language to justify making the city look like something not that much different from East Coast cities in North America, but different than from maybe new unplanned cities in the American South and American West. So it was never a radical agenda. It always fit within, um, I suppose you could say, the urban growth machine and how it's forming in Vancouver. And we don't use the term in Vancouver and in Canada very much, but the Americans would use the term bipartisan, where you, you hash out an agreement which is going to work between uh, centrist and right-wing governments and would satisfy developers. Would you say that Vancouver, Vancouver's attempts at sustainability um, have missed the mark, or are we on track? And in the context of looking at the direction of, of local politics in Vancouver. Okay. We, we use the term sustainability as density to show the way sustainability has been molded and repackaged to be a thing which would fit within the urban growth machine. And that means more high-rises downtown and higher density in that fashion. There are very good aspects to the sustainability as density package, and you can read that from any number of people like Patrick Condon in terms of helping transit happen, getting people closer together so they can socialize more, it's easier for them to interconnect, being able to walk for work and the gains of having face-to-face connections with people, making a more lively streetscape, those things are good. But you add that stuff onto the fact that the city's becoming more expensive, that we live in a very class-stratified society, that real estate is increasingly being used as a source of capital accumulation, the results have been very, very bad from a social justice perspective. And I don't think that we can disentangle... Have they also, con- been, have they also been bad, though, from a consumption perspective? Because going back, I mean, towers are not... 
the most sustainable wheel, uh, way to do development, right? They're just no, you're actually right. There's been right? That's that 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 I meant. Like it's this, that is a huge this myth gla- in Vancouver. That huge glaring gap, and that's a that's there's there's a thousand accounting games and all of this kind of stuff. What do you include and what do you exclude? And when you don't include it, do you still say that? yeah? The energy consumption of the high-rises downtown is a disaster. Any new building being built now which isn't very low energy, if not net zero, is a crime. And they're continuing to do that because the accounting's not there because there's an assumption that just having people live closer together is going to solve these problems and it's not enough to get any means. But another way of putting it is this. All of this thinking is 20 years old. And 20 years ago, when people talked about climate, they talked about stabilizing emissions in 1990 levels. Things have changed dramatically in terms of the severity of the environmental problems and also the severity of the inequality in cities. So the project needs to be dramatically rethought. What does that project look like? Um, well... One thing I could say is I don't really know. Another is that it should be a, a sort of a mass project with a lot of different voices being added to it and a lot of sort of long-term collaboration and, and discussion and dialogue which evolves over time. Uh, so I can give some suggestions. Some have already been made, right? Which is that you look much more seriously at energy in terms of um, uh, zero-net buildings, in terms of district energy. Um Another, we, we have old examples of cooperative housing. Perhaps the sort of management needs to be tweaked, but there is no reason why we can't re-examine how much money goes into the federal budget and have higher taxation so we redistribute it to create more non-market housing. I don't think there's any problem there. Um, we could be massively upping the ante on how much public transit there is. Uh, and... We could be massively changing our energy systems to become zero carbon themselves. This is perhaps more abstract, but in Vancouver, I grew up in the Portland area, and Vancouver has, to me, a very aestheticized uh, vision of what sustainability is. Um, and it's articulated through towers in Yale Town and through a, a form of urban living that is often uh, based around uh, views and hype. Yeah. Um, with density. Yeah, okay. And in Portland and other cities, um, and, and by no means am I saying Portland is perfect, but I think uh, initiatives in Portland, I, I think to a large extent, have been far more successful than in Vancouver. And I also think that the form of development in Vancouver has not been one based around the tower and the view. For obvious reasons, Portland has some beautiful views of Mount Hood and the valley, but it's not all based around the mountains and the water. Um, and I think in turn that has really created an entirely different identity and culture within the city that is, you know, it's what has now sort of been uh, commodified in a sense of keep Portland weird, but this notion of um, it's we are what we are and we're not trying, we're not doing any global posturing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're not a global city. We're mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon. Uh, we do what we do, and and we're trying to do things better, and we're trying to do 
uh, sustainability in a way that encourages guerrilla gardening and gardening and placemaking and all of these things that in many ways I feel that they're in complete contradiction and contrast to like Yale Town and yet the, the language that is, is used you know, to describe Yale Town is sustainable whereas I look at parts of low-rise districts in Portland and I see um, you know, urban gardening everywhere um, but n- not the aestheticization of the notion of density and sustainability. Okay, so, so what you have is a packaging of sustainability in terms of sustainability as density, which is supporting more people living in the urban center and high-rises. Uh, there's an advantage that you get to have views of the mountains that pays more, but puts a huge emphasis on developers promoting that. So you end up with a planning project which is has shoddy accounting in terms of concerning our full range of metabolic flows. Um, you have a bracketing of the social concerns of what happens when you make... Well, when real estate gets expensive, then you move into to higher... Uh, high-end real estate, and you treat housing as a market good, uh, and then the whole thing is packaged by shallow developers with shallow promoters to shallow consumers. So, uh, sure, there's, there's lots of terrible aspects about that. I, I totally agree with you. Um, and that probably is an effect of that kind of sustainability as density model. <laughs> Does that go to the whole concept of sustainability? I mean, some people think so. I've, I've talked to people who want to throw it out and, and replace it with the notion of green economy. I think that's worse. Mm-hmm. Um, sustainability right from the start has suffered this problem that it was taking a range of environmental worries and then packaging them in a market-friendly concept. Uh, so uh, Bernstein has a book on liberal, I think he calls it The Birth of Liberal Environmentalism. And you have a total package of liberal environmentalism. It flows through international organizations, through the Brentwood Report and Our Common Future into the Rio Summit and then market mechanisms in the Kyoto Protocol. It flows upwards from cities into urban management. It gets rescaled from the international level back to cities. and So we have this massive ball of interconnected networks promoting this notion of liberal environmentalism, which is very small and incremental and is very worried about how to take a core of concepts which were held by, by a disliked counterculture... <laughs> And then, you know, like an unpopular vanguard of of graduate students who didn't shave in the 1970s, right? And then translate to something which would work in this this sort of globalized neoliberalism. And the results of me are are something you can can criticize at multiple levels in many, many different ways. And I think political ecology is a kind of vehicle for for putting it to the test and saying, look, you're talking about material flows, let's measure those flows and what you're doing about them. Let's look at the way social powers work and let's look at the way your discourse is to... You want, your, you want to promote your discourse, so sustainability became a discourse which promoted itself, and it promoted itself by becoming less and less clear how to define action in particular contexts, which means it became very, very flexible, very variable, and used by lots of people in different ways, and so it ceased to have a real core of meaning. So you can find people writing in sustainability discourse saying beautiful things, and you can also find 
greedy capitalist pigs yeah. who would destroy the planet to, to make money. Yeah. I just found out that Going to Vision Vancouver, I, I see a lot of uh, similarity in vision and team and uh, some of David Lay's early writing back to the 19, back to I think 1980, there's uh, article liberal ideology in the post-industrial city um, and he makes the case that while team was sympathetic to social justice concerns um, they weren't um, they didn't that, that was not their primary concern um, and that was reflective of their constituency. Um, it wasn't a party representing downtown Eastside activists or uh, um, residents. Um, and with vision, I guess I see a very flexible use of sustainability. Um, but I also, I, I see, it's alarming to see the lack of respect for empiricism from vision knowing that they're approving, they're using the Comprehensive Development Zoning District uh, to approve towers when they know that towers and much of some of the, liter- the, the best literature, Patrick Condon does, a, does some great accounting on the tower. Um, well, you that is just not green. It's not sustainable. And yet they keep approving it. Well, that's... And it's not just been vision, certainly not, but well, for just, a party that... Let's just dive up a couple things. Just, yeah. for, just to start, um, you could make towers more green. Yeah. If they're not putting into the CD1 negotiations upping uh, environmental improvements in terms of eco-efficiency, then they're not being wise, and they should be. And that, that's a whole thing that could be debated. Um, but they, they clearly, I mean, in my mind, they, we shouldn't be building buildings in the city, new capital stock, which is zero carbon, or extremely close to it. Maybe you want to hook that up to a, a electricity supply, assuming it's 93% renewables, to use your, your zero carbon measurement. But you've got to be building buildings now which aren't emitting carbon, because that's capital stock, and it's going to last 100 years, and you might as well be playing Russian roulette with your future if you build buildings which aren't like that. But on a separate tack, Right? Social scientists, leftist social science, there's a monster leftist social scientists aren't good at analyzing. It's called the centrist political program. And centrist political programs tend to seek as their power base middle class professionals, often with very sophisticated planning and management understandings of the world. Um, they generally want to voice some social concerns and because they want to bring in uh, people from the left and they want to balance as well uh, market interactions. And so what you end up with is compromised positions and negotiated settlements that handle a lot of these issues in, in ways that, that sort of cut, cut the baby in the middle in the Solomon's Dilemma. And so, sure, there'll be language of support for social justice and there'll be language of support for the market. And that's, you know, there's a pretty... The left-wing cope politics in Vancouver has never been really that successful in fully getting power when there's been an opposition between cope and NPA and NPA has tended to win. When there's been times when there's been alignment of these kind of central forces, they're able to, to consolidate power and, and be in power. See, and that, that goes to your question about the Enbridge Pipeline. You've got to be really right-wing right now 
want to support an oil pipeline, which would be new capital stock, increasing carbon emissions, to then have that oil go through the port of Vancouver and turn Vancouver into a full-time uh, oil shipping port. Right? I mean, I don't know if that's going to fly. There's so much opposition. Do you think there's a certain attraction to to you to using these issues? Um, at a time when their vision is still recovering from the, the opposition to the approval of the Rise Tower, and they've just approved two new condo developments in the downtown east side. I, I feel like in many instances... No, I think, I think that there's a consistent position. There's a consistent centrist position, mm-hmm. which would believe in sustainability as density, which don't believe that we should have these high rises, would feel that the way of dealing with uh, social justice issues is through building social housing, not necessarily on the same site, using the the um, amenities taxes to then use for social housing in another location fits into that kind of picture. Because it's a general picture of... of management in which you have a market but the market is augmented through flanking mechanisms of meeting basic needs and liberal rights and public participation so it's a big L liberal position and that's been with us since the progressive era it's very well entrenched in <laughs> in, in party politics in North America and that position also can have uh, environmental views and having a mayor who was an entrepreneur and organic juice fits into that kind of picture. Yeah. And uh, those, and uh, you know, gradually as environmental crisis has gotten more serious, that kind of centrist position has taken on environmental issues as one of the things that they're dealing with. So Stephen Dion ran on a carbon tax as, as a liberal. You know, lots of environmentalists are happy with that position. Do you think... Uh a bubble exists in Vancouver's real estate market, and how does an analysis, a political ecology approach um, to this, um, to gentrification, play into um, a market that could be seeing some serious corrections and um, bust? When political ecology kind of starts with land. And so what you might want to say is something really basic, like, uh, this is about shelter (laughs) for humans that live in cities, and the shelter involves people's relationship to land. And what we've chosen to do in market societies, and this is actually a change from the 1970s when there's a considerable push. In the 1970s, there's a considerable push to take housing off the market. Uh, through co-ops and, and, and through state-supported housing and council flats in, in the UK. From the 1980s onwards, we've gone through a market system for providing housing to people. That market system puts value on land in which that value on land has potential for capital accumulation and is in competition with other sources of, of capital. So add that into the just very dynamic and volatile mix of the relationship between finance capital and industrial capital, deindustrialization in the north, global capital flows, the, the chaos of an international market and, and the need for capital to find sources of replication during incredible uh, volatility because of a just general 
uh, a deregulation of markets, and you've got an extremely volatile situation which deeply threatens the concept of people's need and right to shelter in the city. Is a real estate bust in Vancouver an opportunity to reclaim, in a sense, uh, sustainability and connect it more explicitly with social justice? Well, every crisis is an opportunity (laughs) (laughs) for both the right and the left. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a crisis. It's a terrible situation. That should always be something that should allow people to reflect on the reasons why and the causes and, and, and for them to start organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got this this crazy disconnect between the multiple scales of provincial and federal and, and intransigence at many levels. So just because there's a crisis doesn't mean it's going gonna, it's gonna to pan out to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, what would need to happen for for that more explicit connection and, and uh, real practical changes to be made to the sustainability package to really um, to use crisis as an opportunity? Well, part of I mean a lot of it we've been neoliberalized and so. So social institutions, social justice institutions are weak, and environmental organizations are weak, and there's almost no social justice and environmental organizations even to speak of. Um, and so people need to, to organize, and they, they need to find a voice in this terrain, and that takes some time and commitment to, to just thinking things through. And, Part of the process of neoliberalization of our psyche, so to speak, was uh, to defer concepts of citizenship and problem solving to, 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 to markets rather than it being something that would be fought for politically. So there's a huge amount of, of building in terms of popular education and mobilization that, that needs to be done. Um, and then there's I mean, even mobilizing alternative political parties through a pretty traditional process. Um, I'm not a campaigner, right? And in, in terms of a kind of big picture, what needs to happen? Um, there's there's a lot of ways to, to skin a cat, right? So so we could be massively increasing density in different ways than we're doing. Um, there's no reason why individual householders should be limited to very small uh, laneway suites, for instance. Um, there could, I mean, in a society in which the state took more power in the public will, we could be having large-scale expropriations to create new social housing. Um, that perfectly fits within the legal systems of Canada to do that. Um, some serious decisions need to be made about things like golf courses. Because right now the city holds golf courses instead of building social housing on them. Um, there's massive issues about the tax base and the macroeconomics of our society in terms of how much money gets funneled into the government for social consumption and for provision of basic needs. And for a very long time now, there's been an agenda of cutting the role of the state, which debilitates non-market forms of economic uh, development. Uh, Lastly, can you connect sustainability and political ecology? So, um, 
Paul Robbins says in his, his textbook that public ecology is the science of sustainability. And, and I think we should take that seriously, that sustainability it comes with a lot of claims in terms of um, the need for holistic planning and integrating social, environmental, and economic uh, indicators and well-being into cities. But not just cities, of course, to, to sort of any level of, of, of object of attention, whether as a manager or as a research capacity. But the dynamics aren't well understood. And so political ecology can, can really look at those dynamics in, in a deep way, which doesn't get stuck with the sort of limited frameworks of, of managers and planners that can look at the real social dynamics behind it. And these are really complicated processes. And they're complicated processes which shouldn't just be understood in, in very mechanistic ways. You often see that in sustainable literature. So understanding the dynamics of capital and class and land and, and ecosystems and their interaction is something political ecology can really do. Um, now, if it were to then take on sustainability as a kind of normative position, that's an interesting conversation as well. Because the, the traditional left hasn't tended to articulate particular planning proposals or, or ways of thinking about the principles that they want to operationalize once, once they're in power. There's been an assumption that uh, a collective decision-making or, or decommodification would be enough, and it's not enough because you can, you can have a group of workers owning a factory who produce a toxic substance. <laughs> And so you need to actually incorporate some values. So there's a lot of room for dialogue. And so the idea that that so, so that sustainability could become a more a more socially oriented and social justice approach is there. Are you optimistic that organized labor has the potential to make these connections? I mean, it's. I was. I have to admit, I was somewhat surprised when the um, the energy workers uh, union or the union representing. Um, uh, I think it energy worker anyway uh, came out in opposition to the Northern Gateway. Yep, the Power Workers Union in Ontario, which is supported by nuclear, is dramatically opposed to renewable. Yeah. So. Um, Labor has the potential. It also people can just because you're in the union doesn't mean you don't face particular pressures to, to narrowly defend your interests. Um, now, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at the dynamics and the possibilities there, but it seems to me that it's always there's labor-funded organizations like the Center for Policy Alternatives, which does good work, uh, and there's no reason to me. I've never talked to anyone who worked in a union. I didn't think might not be on side, you know, mm -hmm. but um, unions right now are, are on the defensive and they have a lot of problems with capacity and a lot of problems with rear guard actions of just pro uh, pro protecting their, their, their existing um, membership base. And so what I don't want to do either is sort of blame them for not being entirely on board. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I see lots of hopes that a revitalized labor movement could be the... the the basis for a kind of left-green coalitions, and I think the kind of work that Canadian auto workers were doing around just transition is a good place to start as an example. Mm -hmm. I want to read um, my favorite lines from one of your recent papers. I'll have you expand on it. 
The idea of the poor rendered homeless so that urban professionals can feel altruistic about riding their bicycles to work is obscene, but not far from the sustainable class conflicts of Vancouver. A political ecology of gentrification can help to explain the conceptual frameworks that have made this current state of affairs publicly acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, in a way, a lot of what I've written has just been about this issue of framing and the sustainability, because uh, it's such a variable concept. And also works through so many different scales of operation. It gets hashed out and operationalized at a concrete level, often in terms of of not very desirable projects. Mm-hmm. And so, because it has such normative overtones, it, it also gets internalized. So people see themselves as promoting sustainability and as sustainability advocates, but what they actually end up promoting are projects which can have very adverse impacts on the poor. And what we're seeing now in Vancouver, either willfully or or just through neglect, is a very classified society with huge homelessness problems in which many, many people, if not the majority, have serious problems with access to housing. And at the same time, we're getting official rhetorics that this is in the name of the sustainable city. And that kind of use of sustainability for ideological purposes and for essentially a revanchist politics is something we should all be standing up against. And one hopes that through a kind of a genealogy and tracing the origin of these ideas and then how the ideas get put into place and why they get accepted and then how they get reframed and and reinterpreted can help uh, clarify in people's minds what's good and bad about these ideas and where we need to really change things in terms of how we we organize our cities. You've been listening to an interview with Noah Quastel, and he's a PhD candidate in the UBC Geography Department, and we were discussing the intersections of political ecology and urban development. And this concludes uh, this edition of The City, and you can hear The City on CITR 101.9 FM on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and CJSF 90.1 FM on Fridays at 10 a.m. and streaming live at uh, both of those stations, CITR.ca and CJSF.ca live at the... uh, times that I just previously mentioned. And uh, you can find uh, this program um, and uh, past podcasts at thecityfm.wordpress.com and find The City on Facebook at The City on CITR and on Twitter with uh, that same name. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at thecity.citr at gmail.com. And uh, I want to also thank you so much for tuning in and listening. And uh, we'll be continuing uh, more conversations about the city uh, next week. And we're going to go out with Civilized City um, by Vancouver's Hermetic. <laughs>